We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Well, welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who don't know about this show, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, we want to try to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show... It's kind of like nostalgia. We talk about politics, history, religion, old movies. And tonight we're going to be talking about a little bit about politics or the judicial system. We're going to be talking to Kevin Ring about Brett Kavanaugh, the nominated replacement for Supreme Court Justice Kennedy. And we're going to be talking to Alan Rhoda, uh, you know, an old guest of the show. Or, and we're talking about an actor named Charles McGraw. And I know everybody out there, 90% of the people saying, who is Charles McGraw? Beth, you want to tell them who he is? My favorite movie that he was in was Narrow Margin. And that's a noir movie, and he's in it with Marie Windsor. And he's the star. And he's great. He's this crusty old policeman, and he's trying to save the the life, what he thinks of this uh, witness for a, a real bad gangster. And he learns a lesson about about who's good and who's bad. It's great. It's great. So that's my favorite. He's in all kinds of other stuff. He's in, well, you know, Spartacus. Oh, the other one, The Birds. The Birds. Because yeah. my first question was, well, he's in any sci-fi. Because he kind of has a face for sci-fi. But I'm mean, he's in the birds, and LQ. Yeah, he's in a boy and his dog, which is one of the most different sci-fi movies ever made. <laughs> but yeah. our buddy LQ Jones did it. He directed it, yes, and he had a small part to play in it. So <laughs> he must have liked Charles McGraw. All right, we got one question coming up from Anna and Queen. Yes, Anna, what's your question? Yes, hi. So if my husband and I, if we pass away together on a trip, is there any way to keep his parents from raising our child? Yeah, we need to appoint a, a guardian to raise the child if something happens to both of you. And that's one of the most important parts about a will. You know, a lot of times young people say, well, I don't need a will because I don't own anything. But at the same time, they have a child under the age of 18. And if... You don't have a will. You don't appoint a guardian. The court's going to appoint a guardian for that child. And a grandparent would be one of the people that would be in line. So if you want to plan things out and you want to keep control of the situation, even if you don't have a lot of assets, you're young, one of the things you may want to do is who's going to take care of my young child after I'm gone? You can appoint a guardian. Now, one of the other things you have to think about as far as your young child is concerned, you know, like if something happens to you and your husband, you're in an accident. There's a very good shot there's a a big lawsuit out there because you're both not going to die of of natural causes. And if there's a big lawsuit, who's going to choose the lawyer to handle that lawsuit? Who's going to invest the money for the child after that lawsuit is is settled? And that's where a trustee comes into play. Now, the guardian and the trustee can be the same person. 
A lot of times in some okay. Fa- okay, all right. I, first question is answered. But, that, you know, that's one of the things. Everybody who's got children under the age of 18 should do a will to think about having a guardian and think about having a trustee. Beth, you have an email question. What is it? Yes, I do. Good day. My father recently died of a massive heart attack at the age of 58. My parents got divorced 10 years ago, and although my brother and I lived with our mother, Dad was very much in my picture. My father's will, written very soon after their divorce, leaves everything to me. It specifically leaves nothing to my brother. Still, my mother and brother think I should split everything in half and give my brother his share. My mother had an insurance policy on my father that will pay her, by the way. Besides his condo, worth about $500,000 with no mortgage, he's left a retirement account of $330,000 with just me as beneficiary and another $400,000 in his brokerage account, which he inherited from his parents. Please tell me what you would do, Bernadette. Okay, well, one thing, Bernadette, it's hard to answer that question because it's your decision. But my feeling is your father had his reasons for naming you. First of all, he did a will. He named you as beneficiary. He had years, I think, under the fact pattern to change the will if he wanted to. Um, So, one, he wanted you to have the will. Number two, he named you beneficiary on some of his assets. So he was thinking this out. And I don't know why he didn't leave your brother anything, but I think you would know why he didn't leave your brother anything. And you might want to just think about that and when you're making your decision. Yes, you could pass some of the assets over to your brother, but I would bet 10 to 1 your father had his reasons. He just didn't make a mistake, and he just didn't put you down on his account, on his retirement account. Um, on his brokerage account, which he inherited from his parents, in his will. I don't think he did that by accident, so why did he do it? And you've got to examine your conscience, so to speak, to say, well, why did he do that? And I think he had a reason. Now, if you think it's he had no reason, he just did it by mistake, which I find it hard to believe. And your father wasn't a senior citizen when he was doing this, so it's not like he was elderly or had dementia or anything like that. So he made his decision— I would honor his decision, but at the same time, you got to examine your conscience what's right to do. But legally, there's no question all the assets are yours. And morally, I don't see why you would have to share with your brother because, again, your mother's going to collect If Your mother thinks that she wants to even things out a little bit. Well, she can collect the insurance and at some point leave that to your brother. And that's fine if she does that, if that's her choice. And that could even things up a little bit. But let's say you gave half to your brother, and then your mother leaves all the insurance to him. You might end up with less than half when that certainly, I don't think, was your father's intent. So it's it's not a legal question. Legally, the assets are yours. There's no question about it. The will leaves it to you. The beneficiary leaves it to you. Um, so obviously that's your father's intention. And I would go toward honoring your father's intention. I don't know all the facts. I don't know why your father didn't name your brother. I suspect you did. And maybe he knew that your mother would be in her, leaving him assets. And maybe your mother favors him over you because right now she's asking you to give him money. Why? So uh, say a prayer and do the right thing, but don't do it too quickly. Think about it. before Because you give away assets, it's too late. And then depending on when your father passed away, we may you may have to file a gift tax return or do things like that. And that could have negative consequences to your future estate planning. All right, so we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be talking to Kevin Ring about the future of the Supreme Court, specifically Brett Kavanaugh. And then we're going to be talking to Alan Rohde about Charles McGraw. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, and my wife, Beth. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. 
Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, August 21st at Vesuvio Restaurant, 7305 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn on Wednesday, August 22nd at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. And finally, at the Grand Prospect Hall, 263 Prospect Avenue, Park Slope, Brooklyn, on Thursday, August 23rd, at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Kevin Ring, who's been on the show before about his book, Scalia's Court. You know, we got some interesting news as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, U.S. Supreme Court. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. What kind of justice will, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking positively, what kind of justice will Brett Kavanaugh be? Will from all uh, intents and purposes, it seems like he'll be another solid conservative on the court. Uh, he is a sort of in the Scalia mold more than I think anybody else, um, you know, along with Thomas. So I think he'll be, you know, exactly what people would suspect his president would have appointed, uh, you know, like Judge Gorsuch or Justice Gorsuch now, and uh, will be somebody who tries to interpret the Constitution as it was written, um, as it the words, what they meant to the people who wrote them and how it was ratified, not his own personal politics. So I think there's no surprise. He definitely represents one wing of interpretation, one that I favor. And, um, and, and in that regard, he's consistent with the president's uh, first pick in Justice Gorsuch. Sometimes I hear, you know, I don't know what you call it, backbiting rumors or whatever. They say, hey, this guy's not a real conservative. He's too chummy with the with the lips. Yeah, and it comes from different places. I think part of that is just having gone to school here in Washington, D.C. You know, I went to high school here. His family's from here. So, you know, he's a member of the swamp. So you get that criticism. Then there's others who are more libertarian who criticize him for some of his opinions where he has supported law enforcement against privacy interests. So he's gotten fire from a couple different sides on the right. But I think it's really much ado about nothing. I mean, people are worried about his conservative bona fides. Listen to what his enemies say. I mean, he's been involved in all of the major sort of conservative Republican fights over the last 30 years, from the recount in Florida to the Ken Starr investigation into President Clinton, uh, you know, you name it. And uh, he's been there. And now he's amassed uh, over uh, 12 years on the circuit court, uh, you know, the second highest court in the land, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He's amassed a record that is, you know, clear to everyone. You're not hearing a lot of criticism of his opinions. Uh, considered a smart, bright guy. So, you know, I, there's always that criticism, but the vetting that happens these days, um, I think you can say, um, you know, his record speaks for itself. You wrote a book about, you know, Scalia's court, which of course was a little unusual because Scalia wasn't the chief justice. But what kind, what kind of justice was Justice Scalia in retrospect now that he's gone? Well, 
he changed the court in, in, in several ways, but none more so than his idea that judges should be bound by the text they're interpreting, whether that be the Constitution or federal statutes that Congress has passed. And it seems weird today to you know, think about this, but in the 70s and early 80s, a lot of times justices on the Supreme Court and federal judges would look at a statute or look at the Constitution and really make policy judgments and say, well, this couldn't have been what Congress meant, and so we're going to do this. Or if the language conflicted with um, you know, parts of the debate that occurred when they passed the law, they'd say, well, let's look and see what they said when they were considering this law and try to read meaning into it. When Justice Scalia came, he espoused a theory known as textualism, and he said, our job is to look only at the text, because that's the only thing for sure you can say that they all agreed to. They might have had different intent when they passed the law, but this is what we have to go by. This is what passed two houses of Congress, and this is what was signed by the president. So our job is not to imagine what they might have meant, but just to interpret the text as reasonably as possible. And that really changed things because now you had the justices, and now even the liberal justices always start with, let's look at the text. What does it mean? What do these words mean and how should we apply them? And when you do that, it helps them sort of push aside bias and uh, sort of personal politics and really get to what I think people expect from judges, which is to interpret the law and not to give it the meaning that you know they want it to have. So he really changed things in that direction, this idea of textualism. In, this, in the constitutional sense, it was combined with this idea of originalism, which is you give those words the meaning that they would have had at the time that they were written. And so that had meaning too, because it has things like in the Second Amendment debate. What does that mean? Does that mean the militia or does that mean it was a personal right to own firearms? So that sort of philosophy also helped ground judges at a fixed point. And his view was, oh, yeah, times change and people want to change the Constitution. They can't. That's what the amendment process is for. But otherwise, we have a written Constitution because it's supposed to be fixed. It's supposed to mean certain things for all time. And so he changed the court with that philosophy because after him, more and more of the justices started viewing things his way. And again, you know, there's also that philosophy that the Constitution is like a living document that's changeable over time. Yeah, and that was his, that, that was his arch enemy, uh, that, <laughs> that idea. And um, he said, used to say, I like my Constitution dead um, because, again, he thought they had to have fixed meaning. He used to say, if you believe the Constitution was a living document, then every day you're going to be excited and surprised to find out it means exactly what you hoped it meant, because you could read or import into it whatever you believe. Whereas for him, perfect example, there was a case about burning the flag and whether that was protected speech. Scalia said it was. He said this is clearly expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. And he, you know, he said, told the story the next morning. He comes down and his wife Maureen is whistling, "Your grand old flag," <laughs> and uh, you know. And, and, and busting his chops a little bit. And he said, look, I have no grief for sandal-wearing, bearded hippies who burn the flag, but I think that's what it means. And so that's I can't just do it based on my politics. And I think that that's refreshing. I don't think you see justices on the other side who believe in the living constitution ever come down you know, with an opinion that they don't agree with personally. And that that, that should say something. That that should matter to people. Getting back to Kavanaugh, what do you think the, the, the main opposition, what are going to be their points in trying to stop him from being appointed? Well, the first one that everyone's supposed to think about is whether this person is qualified. And that's a no-brainer. He is. And everyone concedes that. And in the old days, that would have been enough. If you think about Justice Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing. You can't even imagine that today. Uh, the court, the process has been so politicized. But so as a matter of intellect and training and temperament, Kavanaugh is certainly qualified. So instead, it's becoming a political thing. He doesn't agree with it. You know, the other side on certain issues, uh, whether that's abortion or campaign finance or you name it. And so the opposition is frankly one that says, I'm afraid if he gets on there, some of the opinions are going to come down the other way. And uh, given that Justice Kennedy was a swing vote in some instances, they're concerned that now Kavanaugh will be a fifth vote for outcomes they don't like. So 
so I, I think the opposition has been he's been out there now for a few weeks, and I don't think they've laid a glove on him, frankly, because when you go through his record, there's not a lot to point at and criticize, and so you're hearing a lot of, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, static or different, you know, tangential arguments, nothing that deals with his qualifications, and so that's just where we are today. I mean, the fact that the court takes up more political issues and weighs in on them means that the process has become more political. So people view these confirmation fights as almost like elections. And it's like, does he agree with me or does he agree with my opponents most of the time? And if he agrees with me, I like him. If he doesn't, I don't like him. But it's no longer about whether he's qualified. On his retirement, what's your assessment of Justice Kennedy? I think I think he leaves an interesting legacy. I mean, I, I think judges really aren't supposed to be conservative, liberal, you know, in sort of the normal political sense. What's interesting to me is that if I were to characterize him in that way, I'd say he was more libertarian. Um, you know, he stood with the conservative wing on protecting, uh, you know, campaign contributions as speech. He protected the Second Amendment. Um, but then he protected, you know, uh, abortion rights and gay marriage. And so, you know, if this were politics, you'd say he was a libertarian. But I, I guess what that means is he gave liberty sort of in the most expansive interpretation whenever it came up as a value. Um, you know, if individual rights were at stake, he tended to favor those no matter what what the case was. Now, sometimes he did that in a way that I, I, well, I guess Justice Scalia and some others would say he departed from the text. But I just think it's an interesting legacy because I think there is a theme you know, to his term and to his tenure, which is one of expansive individual rights. And I think history will look back on that actually timely. Now, what do you think is the future of the Supreme Court? What's going to happen? I think Kavanaugh's going to get on, but I think we've, we've, you know, crossed the Rubicon here in terms of this institution. I'm afraid, like so many other institutions, it's being torn down um, by people who, you know, want to make everything into politics. And I think, you know, I think that's happened since Roe v. Wade. It's happened through Bush v. Gore. I think it's a bad situation when everybody believes that these are just, you know, nine politicians making policy judgments. Uh, the truth is sometimes you will see, you know, weird majorities, weird decisions where, you know, there's odd bedfellows and, and they, you know, they, they do switch sides a little bit. And I think that's interesting and it's appropriate because they're supposed to be judging and they're not supposed to be politicians. But I fear that the country, too many of our fellow citizens, does see them that way. And I think, you know, sort of both camps, whenever they lose an opinion, they criticize the court for being that way. And I, I think that's a shame because I think we need a court that is the ultimate arbiter of what the Constitution is supposed to be, especially because I think the president and Congress too often abdicate their responsibility to interpret the Constitution. And so I worry that the court has become so politicized, and as a result, we see these confirmation hearings that are just political food fights and not, you know, expositions about what the law should be and what the Constitution means. I know the court is not is deciding more political issues than ever before. Was, do you know, was there ever a time in American history when it was like this? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, there have been times where they would, they would start doing this, and then there'd be a recoil. Um, they'd start getting into issues that they hadn't before, and then, and then there would be pushback. And right now, I mean, I see this court, you know, it, it's moving on one trajectory, which is people view the court as a way to win policy outcomes that they couldn't win democratically. So more and more people are turning to the court and looking to it for that purpose. And once that happens, and once you turn the confirmation process into sort of a democratic popularity contest, I'm afraid it's hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. So, you know, I worry that this is where we're headed. I will say that the Roberts Court has been more conservative, and by that I don't mean politically conservative, but they've been overturning fewer precedents. They've been knocking down fewer laws. They have been deferring more to their democratic will. So that's progress. But 
I don't know if that can continue, and I it just now depends on the makeup of the court at a given time. Kevin Ring, thank you. Scalia's Court, author of Scalia's Court. Kevin Ring, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thanks for having me. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A while back, we had Alan Rohde uh, about his book, Michael Curtis, A Life in Film. I noticed that he had written another book previously about the great actor, in my mind, great actor, Charles McGraw. And I know people out there say, who are you talking about? So, Alan, who was Charles McGraw? Charles McGraw was a a very distinctive character actor. Uh, he had a voice that sounded like a bunch of dishes broken up in a burlap sack dragged behind a pickup truck. Uh, he had a very distinct jaw, very, very tough guy. And I became enraptured with him at a young age. I remember as a kid being taken to Spartacus by my parents when it came out in 1960. And uh, when Kirk Douglas kills McGraw in, in about the first uh, 30, 45 minutes in the film, I felt disappointed that I was deprived of him. So I tracked him for many, many years and as it turned out, I uh, kept track of him, and I ended up meeting his uh, his last significant other, the woman he lived with, with 50, for the last 15 years of his life, befriending her and getting to know, kind of knowing him, even though he died in 1980 in a tragic accident, and I never met him personally. So from that whole experience with Charles McGraw, uh, which was really an exercise in in uh, movie fandom serendipity, if you will. I ended up writing this biography. It certainly wasn't a financial exercise <laughs> where I expected, you know, to make a living writing a book about Charles McGraw, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun to do, and it kind of set me on the path to other projects such as Michael Curtiz and some of the other things that I do. Right. Now, we, we have some listeners out there who I know are, are fans of film noir, and when you think about film noir, you think about Charles McGraw. Absolutely. I mean, he is one of the uh, real signpost distinctive actors. Uh, his main claim to fame in film noir 
was the narrow margin, which uh, has been acclaimed by many uh, uh, cinephiles and critics as the greatest B movie ever made. It was released in 1952. And then there's Roadblock and Loophole and Border Incident and Reign of Terror and so forth. And just by the titles, you get the uh, you get the Uve that McGraw was in. He was either playing implacable coppers or ruthless torpedoes and hitmen and gangsters and so forth. And then he uh, in the 1950s he had a brief flirtation as a leading man at RKO when uh, Howard Hughes owned the studio and the studio system was changing with television and so on and so forth. And he he transitioned from that into um, uh, being a very solid character actor in Westerns and a lot of television, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, so forth. Uh, he had a very distinctive uh, supporting role in The Bridges of Toko Ri with William Holden and Frederick March. Uh, and, and he had quite a career, I think over, you know, 120 credits and so forth. Again, if you, if you saw him, you can't forget him. But what, let's say the major trip. What does he play in Spartacus? What's so memorable about Spartacus? Spartacus, Spartacus, Spartacus he plays Marcellus, the gladiator trainer. So if, if for those of your viewers that are familiar with the film, just a brief recap, when in the beginning where Peter Ustinov is on his uh, slave hunting jaunt and he goes to Libya, which was actually Death Valley, uh, <laughs> uh, buys Spartacus Kirk Douglas brings him back to Capula in Rome to his gladiator training school. Uh, uh, McGraw plays Marcellus, the rather sadistic gladiator trainer, you know, who, who greets his men with this speech. I like you. I want you to be my friend. <laughs> and uh, he ends up singling out uh, Kirk Douglas for special treatment because uh, Spartacus, the Spartacus character is proud and unbending and won't grovel. So, um, he says, you know, just remember, wherever you are, I'll be watching you. And then uh, there's there's a there's a bunch of byplay between uh, uh, the the Marcellus and Spartacus characters, which ends when uh, the slaves rebel, take over the school, and of course Kirk Douglas kills McGraw by drowning him in a uh, big vat of what looks to be chunky beef soup, Roman style, <laughs> circa AD 35. And in fact, when they filmed that scene, uh, Douglas was very rough with McGraw and ended up breaking his jaw when he stuffed him into that, uh, into that soup. McGraw wasn't inclined to, to use a double. And, uh, and Kirk was, uh, you know, Kirk, Kirk was a, a tough character. So uh, McGraw actually got hurt doing that scene, but, uh, that, that's essentially the, the, uh, the summary of his part in Spartacus. Now, another big film that people may remember him in, even though it's a small part, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Absolutely. Yeah. He was Sebastian Scholes, the, uh, the boat owner, and the gulls trash his boat, and that long series of scenes in the um, in the cafe in Bodega Bay where people are hiding as the birds attack. And initially, there's all this debate going back and forth between Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, Ethel Griffiths is there as this kind of uh, a bird expert saying it's impossible because birds from different species don't flock together. And McGraw is in there. And one of the interesting uh, backstories to, to his part, he was uh, on some sort of junket in Canada with uh, one of his stuntman buddies, the late Bobby Hoy, who I befriended. And he got word that Hitchcock wanted him for the bird. So he turned around, flew back, and appeared in the, appeared in the movie. But apparently his part, uh, according to his last significant other, got cut down because he got into a uh, – uh, uh, Hitchcock was trying to either tease him or joke with him, and McGraw made uh, an uncomplimentary remark about uh, Hitchcock's girth, <laughs> and his part got cut down quite a bit. <laughs> but when you watch the credits, he's billed quite high in the credits. I think he's like fourth or fifth billed in the credits, and uh, he was distinctive because by that time in 1963, uh, Charlie had had picked up a rather weathered. Uh, road hard, put away wet look uh, early on. Uh, one of the things about McGraw that, that really was tragic is that he was a prodigious alcoholic for many, many years. 
and uh, he he aged rather rapidly because he was, uh, as many people of his generation were, he was uh, he was an alcoholic and drank almost continuously, and at various times tried to tried to put the bottle down and quit drinking, uh, but he never could. So in cold blood, was he playing himself? Uh, to a degree, although he was a lot more cultured and gentle, he, you know, the rough-hewn personality and the ominous voice. His daughter Jill told me one time that uh, uh, when she was a kid, she said, "You know, I, 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 I don't like inviting my friends over the house because they're scared of you." And <laughs> he said to her, "He said, well, you know something? Without the voice, we wouldn't have this house in Studio City with the swimming pool. So keep that in mind." You know, a lot of that was put on, but uh, his part in Cold Blood, where he played uh, Robert Blake's father, who is seen in flashback, uh, uh, including at the very end of the picture, in in a very devastating scene, appearing as the hangman uh, for Robert Blake. Uh, there's a wonderful sequence that was filled, filmed in a North Hollywood junkyard when uh, John Forsythe and uh, another detective goes to interrogate him about his son. And he has this wistful thing about how he loved his son and so forth. And I taught him the golden rule. And of course he was a very alcoholic, abusive father that loved his son. And at the end, uh, the Robert Blake character says to the priest before he's being hung and in cold blood says, I loved him and I hated him. And, uh, that's a really uh, poignant performance. And McGraw was really a terrific actor. Uh, and I think he got obviously typecast as a villain because of his looks and because of his voice. But he had a great deal of depth. And I think in Cold Blood gave him an opportunity to display that. One film I like because our, our buddy uh, L.Q. Jones, but a boy and his dog. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, I I I I know LQ, and uh -huh. uh, um, he was uh, LQ still going strong. I think he's in his nineties. Yeah, now. and um, yeah, that was LQ's, and that was um, um, Harlan Ellison's, who recently passed away. Uh, Harlan Ellison's story, and uh, yeah, that Charlie Charlie was in that. A lot of old-time actors that LQ used, like Charles McGraw and Hal Baylor and so forth. And, yeah, that's uh, that's quite a movie. And what's interesting about A Boy and His Dog, if you watch the movie, the performance by the dog is amazing. Because when you see animals in movies, you can tell they're always looking off camera to the trainer that's either dangling a piece of meat or coaching or something. But you never get the sense of that in A Boy and His Dog. It's uh, it's really a unique movie and a unique performance. And Charlie, I believe he was a character that had, like, white face makeup. <laughs> very, very <laughs> odd. <laughs> yes. It's a different movie. And, you know, I don't think it can it, be explained. It is. And by no, the way. I, I'm not going to even attempt to do that. <laughs> right. No. But, by the way, those of you who don't know, L.Q. Jones was that. If you watch a Sand Peck and Paul Western, he's a guy usually with long hair who gets killed and shot and dies well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I remember. I remember I went with uh, Robert Ryan's daughter, Lisa, who's a friend of mine, and we went to the, I think it was the 40th reunion screening of The Wild Bunch, and they had everyone who was still alive, stuntmen, people who were in the movie, and most prominently was Ernest Borgnine, who introduced the show with everybody else on stage, and LQ was there, and I didn't see him, and all of a sudden I hear this voice, is this Charles McGraw? <laughs> <laughs> And there was there was old LQ, but uh, great actor and a hell of a good guy. Yes. How did Charles McGraw die? Because that, did his drinking have anything to do with that, or do you know? Well, uh, you, I don't know. Uh, it, it could have. He. What happened with Charlie? Uh, quite tragically, is that he fell in the shower, fell through the shower door, and at that time, safety glass uh, was was not required. This was uh, 1980. And he cut an artery in his arm. And I got a copy of both his death report that was signed by the investigating detective and signed by uh, the woman he was living with, Millie Black, and so forth. And I backtracked, and that was how I actually met Millie Black, who was living in the same house 
when I started all of this stuff in uh, uh, the late 1990s and so forth. But what really happened is, and when I wrote the book on McGraw, I actually was able to track down the retired LAPD robbery homicide detective that, that investigated it. I, I, he actually, I got him to call me. And what happened really is when McGraw fell and cut himself, the uh, uh, rescue service, the fire department ambulance got lost on the way and he oh. bled out and died. And uh, um, and and this detective who I talked to, a very nice fellow, remembered this in really revelatory detail. And I, I said, what you must have had hundreds of cases and uh, all kinds of things. Why do you remember this so vividly? And he said, because the same thing happened to my father and my father. They got there in time and put the pressure bandage on his arm and uh, he, he recovered. And in McGraw's case, he didn't recover. Now, going back to your original question, was he drunk and fell in the shower or did he simply slip and lose his balance? He had a bad hip by that time. He was 66 years old. Uh, I, we'll never know. We'll never know. And, and in the final analysis, uh, you know, it, it's not really uh, important, but it was just a tragic, horrible ending to uh, to a great actor. One last question. And I think I know the answer. I think everybody knows the answer. But if somebody wanted to have a good idea of who Charles McGraw was, what film would you recommend that they view? I'd recommend them seeing uh, The Narrow Margin uh, or Spartacus. So the narrow margin, yeah, he's the uh, leading man. Spartacus, you yep. just described his part. Thank you for right. you know bringing Charles McGraw to life. The name of the book is Charles McGraw, Film Noir Tough Guy. The author, Alan mm -hmm. Rohde. And, and thank you very much for talking uh, movie history with us. Absolutely. Anytime, Mike. Uh, I'm glad to do this, and I'm always glad to to keep Charlie's flame burning. <laughs> Thank you. Well, watch it. Watch Turner Classic Movies, their film noir segments. Absolutely. Watch Noir Alley with my uh, with my pal, Eddie Muller, and uh, they have a lot of good stuff on there. And watch the Western Channel. He pops up very frequently. Oh, yeah, Robert Mitchum. I remember that Western. He's very good in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, he did a lot of stuff. Wonderful Country. Mitchum, in fact, Wonderful Country and uh, Mitchum and he... Mitchum, uh, McGraw was kind of a pint-sized version of Robert Mitchum, and uh, there's a funny story in my book when they were filming His Kind of Woman at RKO in 1951. Uh, the director uh, yelled at both of them to be quiet or something, so they went over to Lucy's across the street from Paramount, started drinking, and then Mitchum said, hey, it's Mardi Gras time. So wouldn't you know it, uh, McGraw and Mitchum disappear and pop up on Bourbon Street. <laughs> in New Orleans, <laughs> partying, and and so what happened was is Howard Hughes sent them uh, uh, sent a, sent them some money to get back to get him back. They they cashed the plane ticket and kept drinking. Then eventually they got on a train going back to L.A. Got off in New Mexico because they saw a sign advertising Kachina Kachina dolls and beer. And then finally got back uh, after going on like a three or four day bender together. So uh, McGraw and Mitchum had a lot in common. <laughs> okay, well I got to look at that movie again. Who was the director at that oh, yeah, point? Farrer, Farrer, well, John Farrow or, or Fleischer? Yeah, well, there's a if you if you read my book, I include the backstory in that because John Farrow directed it, finished the film, and then Howard Hughes and Howard was nuts by this time. He didn't like the ending. So he brought in Richard Fleischer, who was under contract to RKO, who had directed The Narrow Margin, which Hughes kept playing with. Hughes would take finished films, wouldn't release them, and then would sit there dithering and re-editing and playing with them. Drove everybody nuts that worked for him. So Hughes made a deal with Dick Fleischer. If you reshoot the ending of His Kind of Woman, I'll release you from your contract when you're done, and I'll release The Narrow Margin to the theaters. So Dick Fleischer worked on the ending of His Kind of Woman for a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> Howard Hughes bought a new boat. They recast the part of the heavy twice with different actors, including Bob Wilkie. And finally, when they were just about done, one day some guy walks up, and Dick Fleischer told me this story, walks up to him on the set. Fleischer's sitting in his director's chair, and 
puts his hand out and says, hi, I'm Raymond Burr. Uh, Howard Hughes sent me down here. I'm going to play the part of Ferraro, which meant that Fletcher again had to reshoot all these scenes that had been reshot already to, to incorporate Raymond Burr into the film. Uh, it was absolutely nuts. You spent another almost $900,000 reshooting the ending for a year, which is exactly what the film lost when it was released. <laughs> well, but here you we are 65, y- 65 years later. We're still talking about it. Absolutely, because it's a fun movie. Check it out. Alan, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Good luck. What's your next book? Uh, I, I got two things that I'm juggling, and I haven't made up my mind yet. But when the check clears, I'll let you know. Thank you very much. Okay, Mike. Take care. Thanks. All right, Alan. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website site connorsandsullivan.com Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, welcome back again to Ask the Lawyer. I mean, I enjoyed that interview with Alan Rohde. And you know, I didn't know anything about that thing with Robert Mitchum and Charles McGraw. So, it you know, uh, I, New Orleans beckoned. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no wonder Howard Hughes was crazy. <laughs> I had to deal with these guys. You know, well, it probably threw I, I them hope off the everybody edge. out there seen um, um, his kind of woman. It is uh, Vincent Price is in it. You know, this is a noir with these great guys. It's a fun movie. Oh yeah, Raymond right. Burr. Tim Holt, you know, Tim Holt was always one of my favorite actors that never quite, you know, he was in some very important films like My Darling Clementine and The Magnificent Ambersons and Treasure of Sierra Madre, but he never quite broke out of the B-Westerns that he was slotted into, and and his kind of one was another kind of, you know, big movie that he was in that that just, his career never seemed to quite work out for him. Uh, Getting back to Justice Scalia and... uh, you know, a few years back, I was listening to Justice Scalia speak, and he was talking about, you know, you got to go back to the original text and also what words meant at that time. And he one wrote of the, a book, and it was reading, reading law, law, essentially how to read law. Right, and one of the things he talked about and joked, there were a couple of things he joked about, and he had a good sense of humor, uh, was let's say somebody made a reference to a nimrod. I mean, if somebody called you a nimrod today... Would you be insulted? Yes, because you think back to Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd was a Nimrod. And in a lot of our minds, that's the definition of a Nimrod. But that was not the definition of a Nimrod 
prior to Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Nimrod was the greatest hunter in the Bible. So he was a great man, someone that people respected. Well, then then old Elmer Fudd comes along and Bugs Bunny beats up on him. But that is the best story ever. Yeah. If you're in the 1800s, they'll say they, the they, a Nimrod leads, needs a license to hunt. That's all it meant. Yeah. A Nimrod was a hunter. Right. So, I mean, of course, one of the other things, I, I understand Jessica Lee used to like West, watch Westerns, but, you know, maybe saw Charles McGraw or something, <laughs> some of these Westerns. But he said, you know, like when, when they were about to hang the bad guy or something like that, nobody would jump out of the audience and say, hey, this is cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> you know, back then it was and it was part of life. So, uh it's very interesting, very yeah. interesting. And it's it's interesting what Kevin Ring said, like he he changed the whole dynamics of the court. You know, so one man was able to change the whole dynamics of the Supreme Court and change history. Yes, and I think we were blessed to have met him, you yes. know? Yep. Okay, now I think with apologies to Matt, I think when we have the uh the seminars in in Brooklyn, we're oh, not yeah. at the we are at the Prospect Hall very graciously you know, from the owners. We are at the Grand Prospect Hall on August 23rd. We're there at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., not at 11. So Matt just, is the fellow that has that gorgeous great voice, voice yeah. that, that reads reads the commercials for us. So thank you, Matt. And we saw, we gave you the wrong information, so we're very sorry. Yeah. And Prospect I mean, I hope y'all can go to that. Sometimes we get a little cramped at the seminars, but we are not going to be cramped there. That is beautiful. Is it landmarked? I don't think so, but, uh, you know. But it is, I mean, if you have It's an interesting if, building. Absolutely. If you haven't been there, if you live in Brooklyn, Park Slope, Park Slope, that's a great place to go. And we know the owners, and they're great people. Right. It's a, it's a good place to have an event. Now, um, speaking of having events. Oh, we have a couple coming up. Right. Well, one, don't forget, Ed Barr's um, Civil War Roundtable, Wednesday, September 12th. And this is great. Everybody knows Ed Barr's. We talk about him all the time. I hope we don't bore y'all, but we love him. This is an e- This will be an evening to remember. Ask Ed anything. Right, and we're going to have Ed on in a couple of weeks about the show. I'm not sure what we're talking about, but we're going to have him on. We may be talking about the Battle of Brooklyn. We may be talking about the 1933 All-Star Game because uh-huh. Ed might be the only living person who saw the 1933 All-Star Game. He saw Babe Ruth He pitch. saw Babe Ruth play in, in right field. Not only that, he saw Lefty O'Doul play. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, And then we got Father Paul coming up on November 15th. Okay, Father Paul, all right, we are working on this. This is going to be a fundraiser for, you know, he's a medical doctor. Okay. So it's for what his needs. Show's over. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Okay, next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.